You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome, everybody. This is Robert, and I am joined tonight by my co-host, Tony. And tonight, we are doing something special. We're doing the 2022 year in review in mushing, at least Alaskan mushing, Iditarod, Yukon Quest, the things in our backyard. Before we jump into that, Tony, how's it going? Going pretty well. I spent all of yesterday uh, raking snow off of my house since they're promising rain in the forecast this week. So it's just one of those lovely start of the year uh, Alaska weather day uh, weeks. So other than that, it's been great. Yes, we are in 2023, and that also means it is race season up here in Alaska. We kick it off this coming weekend with the Connect 200. And for folks that have not subscribed to our feed, make sure you hit that subscribe button, because starting this Friday, we're going to do our previews. And then on Mondays, we're going to do our recaps. So I'm looking forward to that. Tony, I know that was your idea. We took a Twitter poll any any ideas, any news about our upcoming schedule? I'm really excited. Um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about it more than just, um, you know, hinting at it every two weeks or whatnot. And it'll be a really great way to, to get into the rhythm for uh, when we report on Iditarod daily. Um, but yeah, I, I think it'll, I think it'll go well. Um, it'll keep me, um, it'll keep me, uh, paying attention to everything going on in the, the mushing world uh, even more than I already do. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We've never done it in this format. So I think it'll be uh, kind of hair raising and exciting at the same time because <laughs> we're going to have to be on our toes. We just can't uh, read the report and say, oh, yeah, uh, so-and-so won. And, and then that's it <laughs> uh, in our in our normal news. So speaking of news, mm-hmm. We have 11 stories that we're going to talk about tonight. I know there are a lot more, but as we mentioned, we're going to try to keep this to the news that we know about pretty much in our backyard here in Alaska. A lot of it is Iditarod-focused because that is what we follow the most, but there's some other stories sprinkled in. So let's just kick this off with our first story, and these aren't in any real particular order except for the first one and the last one. And we both agree that Lance Mackey passing away this past summer was probably one of the biggest stories in Iditarod and the mushing world. What do you have to say about Lance? I mean, we've we've spoken about him uh, over the last few months uh, with his passing. It's hard to keep it short and sweet with Lance because he was such a force and and such an important part of the mushing community, not just Iditarod, not just Yukon Quest, but mushing worldwide. Um, the world really uh, stopped and took a moment to mourn him, and uh, rightfully so. Um, I'm actually looking at a picture I took of him in 2020 as I'm talking about this, so it's a little little weird. Um, but it, it was just, 
for those of us who had been hearing the rumblings all summer long, it wasn't necessarily a surprise when he passed, but it was just as much of a gut punch as if it had come out of left field. Um, he, he's gone far too soon. Um, you know, my heart still goes out to his family, his friends, his two little kids. Um, but you know, we get to celebrate him, uh, several times, uh, this coming race season. He's been named the honorary musher of the Willow 300, the junior Iditarod, and he will be the honorary musher for the Iditarod, um, where I read that his children will be uh, sitting in for him and that sled going down uh, the trail in Anchorage. So um, Lance is, and Lance may be gone, but he will not be forgotten. And I think that'll be the tale for years to come. He's right up there with uh, Cephala and some of the other great mushers uh, throughout history. Yeah. And of course, this truly rocked the sports world. A lot of major media outlets picked up the story, and a lot of people don't follow mushing like we do up here in Alaska, but he was an icon in the sports world, and I think uh, a lot of those outlets uh, uh, paid notice to that, and a lot of brands as well. I just saw uh, an ad for Canada Goose pop up uh, this mm-hmm. past week. I know he was sponsored by those guys, and uh, they're paying homage to him as well. So, yes, that is definitely the probably the top story for 2022 in the mushing world. Number two, like I said, and not in any particular order, but <laughs> it's definitely of news to note, and I know we've covered this one quite a bit on the show, but the Yukon Quest had an interesting 2022, didn't it? Uh, yeah, mom and dad went through a divorce, and uh, we now have two Yukon quests that we have to keep track of. Neither one of them going the full thousand miles, and certainly not uh, crossing over the border as we're so accustomed to. But um, there's a little bit of hope for the future, I think. Uh, but for now, we have Yukon Quest and Yukon Quest Alaska, and uh, it's awkward. <laughs> But uh, it gives us one more race to follow throughout the season. Yeah. And at the time of this recording, Tony, is there any other news? I know late in the summer they were talking about a at least a um, uh, a willingness to talk or reconciliation mm-hmm. or something in, in the near future. Has anything that come to fruition? I haven't heard anything, so I'm guessing it's just one of these things where they'll talk about it again next summer. Um, with the, the race season in uh, full swing now, they've been fundraising through the fall. Um, they've been gearing up for the race now. Their rosters are, are becoming finalized, I think, in the next uh, few days if it hasn't been finalized yet. So uh, I, I think it's still just all up in the air. I think they're all waiting to see how successful their races are this year before they move forward, backwards, or sideways. And both of those races take place in February, and they did play nice with that, and they are on different weeks, so uh, you don't have to compete for one over the other. So it's not like watching the World Series and uh, uh, the beginning of the NFL season at the same (laughs) time, for sure. So let's jump into Iditarod. Iditarod 50 was run this past year. We covered it on our daily broadcast. We had an excellent uh, two and a half weeks of shows. You can find all of those shows over 
on our feed. Just search for Iditarod on Dogworks Radio. I know we have changed feeds since then. We have our own mushing radio feed, but I'm sure you can find those if you wish. On our last show, Tony, when we had our guest on Ari, you had mentioned that you were a little upset that they didn't really uh, put out all the pomp and circumstance for Iditarod 50. What can you tell us about that race and where it stands in Iditarod lore? Um, It was a a comeback of sorts after 2021, where they had to do the the Gold Loop Trail. Uh, where they went from uh, Deshka Landing out to the uh, ghost town of Iditarod and back, um, which was more what Joe Reddington had originally um, thought Iditarod would be until they decided to go to Nome. It was it worked out fine in 2021. In 2022, they decided, you know, for the 50th, there's no way we can't go all the way to Nome. It was something that Rob Erbach announced very early on in that summer that Nome was going to happen. Um, and so they came up with a COVID uh, plan so that they could safely run through the coastal communities and the village communities of Alaska um, and feel safe about it not bringing in the plague to everybody. So in that way, it was very energized, but it's still, like I said in the last episode, it still didn't feel like an entire party. They didn't do the musher banquet the same as it always been. They, you know, they phoned it in. They didn't do the the bib draw. This year, they, in 2023, that's all back. But for 2022, it was still kind of subdued. But I think there was a lot to make it one for the, the record books. You had that crazy storm at the end. A lot of different stories coming out of Iditarod that, like most Iditarods, you know, it's once in a lifetime thing. So uh, overall, I think it was for a race very successful, but I know that fans were very disappointed that it, there wasn't more celebration. And I still have fingers crossed that they'll bring it up a notch for 50 years of Iditarod here in 2023. And you say 50 years of Iditarod. Can you qualify that a little bit? I think a lot of our listeners don't know about that. Right. So um, last year was the 50th running in 2022 because you have to count that first year in 1973. That was the first running. And so it made 22 the 50th race, but it's 50 years of Iditarod from 1973 to 2023. So we get two 50s basically, whether you decide to celebrate the birthday or the number of races. There's a little bit of argument that you could say that we're actually at the 53rd running of Iditarod because they did too many trial runs of Iditarod back in the 60s, um, which was more of the gold loop trail that we saw in 2021. But Iditarod itself does not count those as official Iditarod runs. Um, And so they're calling this the 51st running or the 50 years of Iditarod. And for folks that may be new to this show, uh, you are a longtime volunteer with Iditarod and it goes back (laughs) a couple of generations. How far back does your family go with being involved with, uh, with the race? I believe officially it was 1976. But my grandmother uh, saw the teams coming into McGrath 
1975 and she just kind of got pulled into it there because back in the day and it still kind of works this way now she just kind of she was there so they started putting her to work um while uh they were in the checkpoint she was there as a um an aide to a judge who was out there doing some some court work out in the villages so uh, yeah, it's, it's been almost since the beginning. My grandparents missed a few in the 80s and uh, early 90s, but the team that they oversaw for the Anchorage start, you know, they, they still listened to Bob Ryder barking orders from wherever he was in the States. And, uh, and so we've been, we've been there in Anchorage at the Tudor Crossing for, well, as long as the Tudor Crossing's been there, we've been there, so... Wow, a, a long time for sure. And, and are you planning on going back this year? Heck yeah, I'm already signed up. I'm already like ready to go. I actually just booked my hotel room tonight. So uh, we're, uh, we're all set to go. Excellent. All right, so let's move into our fourth story. And that is climate change. And it's, it's a factor in the sport of mushing all over. We've talked a lot about it on this show. We think that uh, it's going to be a big deal in the next few years. We're really feeling it up here. Uh, but a lot of people think, ah, you guys got five feet of snow. That's not climate change. But you are a lifelong Alaskan, Tony. What do you see different in the weather now than you did when you were a little kid? Uh, it's warmer. <laughs> Um, it, it's definitely, there's definitely uh, some warmth going on. Um, we didn't have these um, years of, oh my gosh, are we going to have these races? Um, you know, I, the first time that we ever had a start for Iditarod up in Fairbanks, I was a senior in high school and it was supposed to be a one time thing. This was just a fluke in the weather, um, you know, something that might happen every 50 years or whatever. And then we've had two more Fairbanks starts since then. I don't see that being a problem this year, but a Chinook wind could always come in and wreak havoc. But it, you know, I, I look at the, the videos um, from back when Susan Butcher was running or when Rick Swenson was running or even further back, if you can find the footage from the 70s. And it, the coast looks different. Um, the last time I was in Nome in 2019, I flew in. The sea ice was frozen. I had my friend who'd never been to Nome. We walked out. Well, she walked out on the sea ice. Uh, the next morning, we look out, and where she had been standing was completely open water, um, and so, which was terrifying to me. Um, and I remember hearing from... Uh, the locals there in Nome, and they were saying how this never happens. It never breaks up this close to shore um, in March. And so I, I think we're seeing more of that. We've seen certain th parts of the race change. We have had overflow more so in the last few years, uh, especially on the coast. So it's, it's definitely something that we need to pay attention to. And of course, those that have followed along um, with the typhoon that hit uh, Western Alaska this past summer, um, and it hit several of the mushing communities and checkpoints from Iditarod along the trail. Uh, you know, it's it's not the norm. Uh, it's not something that I think we can ignore. Um, I think 
I don't know where I sit on who's to blame or how do we fix it, but it's definitely something that I did a and all of the races are going to have to continue to keep in consideration. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that typhoon in a little bit and how we think that uh, climate change uh, affected that and potentially some of the checkpoints along the trail. So let's go to our next story. And that is one that I forgot all about when we were tabulating this list. And that, <laughs> that was, um, the Jeff for Nick switch at the last minute. What was that story? Just a day or so before everything was supposed to go down for Iditarod this year, uh, Nick Petit came on to social media and said, hey, I tested positive for COVID. I can't run Iditarod. Sorry, everybody. And then he said, but I have a solution. I have talked with Jeff King, who was not signed up to run Iditarod last year. Um, and Jeff is going to take my dogs to Nome. The dogs are ready to go. They're trained. It's not their fault. I have COVID. They shouldn't be punished. So he talked Jeff into going with the team, which uh, was quite exciting to see and to hear. And there was a lot of speculation on how Jeff would do. Jeff came out and said, I think right before the start, that he was not planning on running the dogs at the same speed that, that Nick typically runs them. Um, he was going to go at a much more comfortable pace for him because he was uh, not trained up for the run. And then you also had to take into consideration that uh, Jeff was not prepared on the trail because all of the drop bags were for Nick. So he uh, he did eat well. I do recall him saying that a couple of times in the interview um, and that he was incredibly impressed with Nick's dogs. Um, that's every checkpoint that he was getting interviewed in. That's all he kept going back to was he was just in awe of the dogs. So it worked out well for both Jeff and for Nick, I think. And it was definitely something to keep us all talking. And was there any... I know we talked about this, but I don't recall what you said back in the day. Was there any um, stroke of midnight rule changes or anything like that to let Jeff in? Or is this allowed no matter what? Um, you know, it's not the first time we've seen it. Jeff King, uh, just a few days before he was supposed to run the 2020 Iditarod, I believe it was. He had emergency surgery. And so one of his rookies, took over for him. The rookie had uh, qualified for the race, but wasn't planning on running until 2021. Uh, he just got to go uh, a year earlier. That did require um, the board of uh, the, the race board, the race committee, that did require their approval saying, yes, he could go. Um, but this is not the first time mushers have swapped. Uh, we saw that with Zoya Denour a few years ago, her husband, at the restart, they announced, oh, by the way, Zoya can't run, so now her husband, John, is going to run. Uh, John, being a longtime veteran and champion musher himself, he, he took off down the trail for her. That, I think, was the wildest swap of all of the swaps that I've seen, uh, not that there have been a huge number or anything. Um, so I, there was not really any sort of, hey, we have to vote and say, yes, he can do it. Um, you know, it's Jeff King. He's a four-time Iditarod champion. They're not going to tell him. No. <laughs> and and that uh, Zoya for John swap, was that in 2020 or 2019? Do you recall? I think 
it was 19. It was one of those two years. I think it was 19. Okay. I think it, I'd have to go back and look. It was not the short race. Cause I remember it was on Willow no. Lake now that I'm thinking about it. Right. And that yep. was, a, that was a crazy story. And I remember covering that with Alex and we're trying <laughs> to figure out what was going on at the restart when, yeah. uh, when that happened. So interesting there, a uh, trivia there. Did, did, uh, did John finish that year? Do you know? He, uh, oh, you know what? I think it was 2020 because he was one of the ones that scratched in Unilaclete. Oh, okay. Okay. So that was, that was, uh, my dates are crazy. So 2021 was the short race. 2021 was the short race. 2020 was COVID hit in the middle of the race. Right, right. So everything kind of got changed around. All right. So let's move to the next one. And it is the Identiverse. <laughs> Uh, we talked a lot about this in the off season. Uh, oh there, there was a hashtag called I did a verse for a long time. And this really has the fans feathers <laughs> ruffled because it deals with so many things. It deals with crypto, it doc dogs, uh, uh, a Netflix of dog training, um, the logo. Can you give us a cliff notes recap in like 30 seconds? Cause we've talked so much about this one. No, I can't. You know I can't. Um, yeah, basically, Rob Erbach has wanted to do all of these things from the time that he started with Iditarod. Uh, he, we've, Iditarod now partners with Dock Dogs, which is a different kind of dog sport uh, where dogs go jumping off a dock. Uh, and uh, that's taken off this year. They actually did a few uh, things with Insider uh, giving live feeds of it. Um, then you have Dogs Network, which is all things dogs. It's going to rival Netflix. Um, everything from dog-related movies, dog sports, dog training, all of that in Netflix-type form. And then uh, the cryptocurrency, the I did a coin or whatever they're calling it this week. Um, that that's Rob's hill. He's going to die on. He he just spoke at the town hall not too long ago saying that it was still on, it was still going to happen. Uh, and yeah, so that's pretty much the Iditiverse uh, for Iditarod Nation. Um, fans, for the most part, haven't embraced it that well. And I think part of the reason is we've been hearing about it now for three or four years and nothing. Uh, we're not any further along than when he first announced these projects. Other than Doc Dogs, we did get a few live feeds this year. Um, so, yeah, that's my cliff notes. <laughs> so, so we will see what happens on the 50th slash 51st slash 53rd or 54th. Depending, <laughs> depending on your I did a math, as you call it on Twitter, uh, if, if things will happen this year. So we have a late entry on our news or stories of the year. Our uh, sometimes co-host Michelle chimed in and says that uh, number 6.5 has to be the passing of Hobo Jim. And that happened this year as well. Who is Hobo Jim and how does he relate to Iditarod, Alaska, and sort of the lore of the North? Hobo Jim is Alaska's balladeer. That's like his legit title. Uh, he was given that by the governor many moons ago. Uh, Hobo Jim is connected with many parts of Alaska from homesteading to the commercial fishing industry to tourism in general, but he also has a stronghold in mushing. 
um, not so much because he's a musher, but because he has written some songs that are very close to the mushing community's heart, including the official song of the Iditarod, the Iditarod Trail. It's a catchy little tune that is a wonderful little earworm that I annoy my family with from about mid-February through the end of March. It's one that I actually learned in school because they taught it in school <laughs> and all the kids sang it. Um, so great times. I wish they still did that. He's also uh, connected very closely with Brent Sass. Um, he wrote a song not about Brent, but it's called Wild and Free, and Brent heard it, was very inspired by it, and named his kennel after that song. So there's a lot of tie-ins. He was very close with Lance Mackey, with uh, Hugh Neff. So when we lost Hobo to cancer, um, I think actually at the very end of 2021, but it is definitely ripple affected all the way through 22. It it was. I mean, he's the soundtrack of my Alaskan childhood. Um, he wrote music for Libby Riddle's book, Danger the Dogyard Cat. And so I know all of those songs by heart. Um, he he wrote he's written so many songs that um, that speak to and about Alaska that it's he's another one that it's really kind of hard to, to speak in a short amount of time about just the impact that he had in, in the community as a whole, not just mushing, but Alaska and, and other parts of the world. So there is always a debate about when is too early for Christmas carols. A lot of people say Thanksgiving is the time. <laughs> when are you allowed or when is it too early to play hobo gym music before I did a rod? It's never too early unless you work in the tourism industry and you have to listen to the same five songs over and over and over again. When I worked for uh, the CVs, uh, we used to play uh, the Iditarod Trail song, Reddington's Run, and uh, Fishing Chickens, and a couple of others. And it was just on repeat on a loop while um, we were doing kennel tours and, and then um, before and after the, the show Wild Ride in Anchorage. So, um, for those summers, I was like, you know what, I'm good. We'll play it like the day of Iditarod, and then we'll be done until summer again. Um, but now I'm playing it all the time. Anytime I can annoy somebody with it, I'm definitely playing it. And we're going to take a short break here, and we come back. We're going to jump back into our 2022 In Review in Mushing. We'll be right back. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the Northern Lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Paw Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. And we are back and we're covering the top stories of 2022 in the sport of mushing, at least from an Alaskan perspective. And we've covered a bunch of stories already, like climate change, the Iditarod, 50th running, the Iditaverse, uh, Lance Mackey and Hobo Jim's passing, and many others. And we're going to jump into one that's probably the most recent news on our list, and that is the 
story about Hugh Neff and his disqualification right at the end of the official uh, entry date, if you will, for next year's race. What can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, I think the problem started, well, it probably started a few years uh, before now, but um, the problem started, he was, he scratched in Ruby and the Iditarod in 22. Um, there's debate over what happened and how it happened. Hugh said that he was threatened with disqualification if he didn't scratch. The race has a little bit of a different story than that. Whether or not, you know, you, you side with one or the other, the, the big concern was the dog's welfare. Um, they were concerned that the dogs had been running sick too long, too hard, and they had suggested, the veterinarians had suggested that Hugh back off a little bit. Hugh disagreed, um, which many mushers do. Uh, they do disagree. They know their dogs better than somebody who only sees them for a few days out of a year is the argument. Um, and so there was a little bit of concern. And then, of course, Hugh went on a sort of press tour and social media tirade uh, that I, I personally, this is just my personal opinion, I don't think that helped his case for this coming race. Uh, he entered, he sent in his entry um, fee and his application. The review board, which every musher, as anybody who applies to run the Iditarod, they go before a review board and that review board chooses either yay or nay. Um, most of the time, fans don't know if someone has been denied unless that person says something. And that's what happened here. Hugh went online and went to the media and spoke out about how he didn't think it was fair. He believes that it's um, a witch hunt, basically, um, and that it's because certain people don't like him. Uh, he made it to sound like a conspiracy. And Iditarod uh, basically came out with a statement saying there were concerns in the last race, um, but he's not barred from ever entering Iditarod. Uh, he just, you know, he needs to apply again next year. Um, and that's kind of where it was left. Uh, once in a while, he will, will pop back on his social media and and still sound very hurt about the decision. Um, but he is planning on running the Connect 200 this next weekend. So uh, it'll be an interesting race season. Um, I don't think we've heard the last of Hugh or the, the controversy surrounding both uh, Iditarod and the Quest. I'm still wondering why he didn't sign up for the Quest, but. That's just me. <laughs> so I think the interesting point there is uh, in Iditarod's statement, they said that uh, you can apply uh, for future races, meaning potentially 2024 race and beyond. And I know just a couple of episodes back, we talked about the qualify, qualifying review board and how everybody goes through that process. But you brought up an interesting note during that show where you said there has probably been probably been other people that were told that they could not run, mm -hmm. but it just sort of uh, was swept under the rug, if you will, either by Iditarod or by the musher or whomever. It didn't make a lot of noise. I'm sure that that is mm -hmm. the case. Yeah, um, you know, the, the review board, I did talk with a couple of mushers after that um, episode aired, and um, they said that the review board is made up of past Iditarod mushers, ones that are not racing. They don't have, you know, a, a dog in that site 
for lack of a better cliche, you know, but they do know the race and they do know mushing. And so there, it's not like it's just some race official who has an ax to grind because he's jealous of uh, somebody's popularity or anything like that. We're talking about a, a select group of the mushers peers. Um, it's the same review board for everybody. Um, and they go through the same criteria and checklist. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think they don't publicize who doesn't get in. And I did or I did not publicize NEFT uh, disqualification or not disqualification, but denial. Um, that was Hugh's choice to make that public. Um, and I think that's just out of respect for the musher. You know, it's like, hey, you know what? Not this year, but try again. Um, you know, make the corrections or whatever, you know, is the concern that the review board has and we'll talk next year or we'll talk two years from now um this isn't the first time that he's had this happen uh this happened after um the quest barred him from running um iditarod made the same choice he had to requalify and then he could run again um so it's it's not the first time that we've seen it. And really, it's the only time we ever hear about it is when the musher brings it up, not the race. So two points, and I know that we're uh, going a little long on this particular story, but when you, <laughs> I, I did not know you spoke to folks uh, that knew about this board. I know, I just sprung that on you, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, do you know if it's unanimous? So if it's a uh, five-person board, all five people have to vote yay or nay, or is it... Uh, you know, one of those things where there could be a holdout and, you know, four say yes and one say no or whatever. That I uh, have not asked, and that's a good question, and maybe uh, they'll chime back in after they, they hear this episode. Um, I don't know, you know, it, it kind of feels like uh, it's mushing, and I don't know that mushers ever 100% agree on anything other than if the trail is crappy or not. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, but yeah, so that, that's a good question. And I might reach out to those that have reached out to me and, and see if they know that answer. And my other point, going back to people that are, have potentially not been approved, I'm thinking about rookies. And there is a, a big process that rookies have to go through in order right. to be approved to run Iditarod. Of course, they have to do their Iditarod qualifiers. They have to do what they call an Iditarod report card. I believe it's still called mm -hmm. that. They have to have a yep. letter from an Iditarod finisher, I believe is still in the current mm -hmm. rules. And that that letter must come from a finisher that's in good standing. And then, of course, yep. they have to pay their entry fee and get it in on time and all of that. But that whole packet, if you will, is what is presented to the Iditarod Review Board. And this happens to everybody, not just singular yep. mushers that have problems on the trail, but rookies, veterans, right. and the like. Yeah, no, you know, it's it's pretty much the same process for everyone, except for, you know, your rookie year, you do have to have a few more things like uh, letters of reference and that sort of thing and proof that you've qualified. Um, but once you've finished Iditarod, then it's just up to, you know, you have to stay, you know, a, a finisher in good standing. Um, and that's at the discretion of the review board uh, based on the rules of Iditarod, the um, Mush with Pride, um, they take that into consideration, which I know we don't have enough time to really talk about this in great detail, but, um, you know, and they do take into consideration other races if there are concerns uh, from the quest or 
the Kinect 200 or the Kobuk 440 or, or any race. Um, they take those into consideration as well. So let's talk about uh, some other DQs, and I would <laughs> like to I would like to dive into that just a hair uh, after we talk about the storm last year. That was big news yeah. during Iditarod. There was a heck of a lot of havoc in that last. I guess that's the last <laughs> third or so of the race. But can you summarize what happened during the storm and the two people that were technically DQ'd during that, uh, that fiasco? Oh gosh, the storm to end all storms. Uh, we've seen this quite a bit, especially on the last leg of the, the Iditarod. Uh, the coast is known for its windstorms and their ground storms. And, um, it, it, it's hard to describe because I haven't even really been in one that is, is as, amazing as what they have constantly on the west coast but um, basically what happens is the wind is blowing and you've got loose snow and it kicks up and the coast is pretty flat as it is and so it's just white from head to toe you can't make up down sideways left right it's just white all around you Um, and then those ice particles are hitting you in the face dogs don't like running in the wind Um, all of this sort of thing and then take all of that and times it by depending on which mushroom you talk to like a hundred or a thousand. And that's pretty much how you had it from uh, white mountain into the checkpoint of safety. Uh, that's where it all went down. Brent Sass, Dallas Seavey, they ran through it. It wasn't pretty, but they did it. Um, mushers that came after them, not so much. Uh, a lot of them had to hunker down in between the checkpoints. Um, we saw Bridget Watkins uh, break her body. We saw Gearhart uh, also break his body, and you know, didn't they didn't get to finish their rookie runs? Uh, both are signed up for 23. Jeff Dieter and his wife uh, Katie Joe they made it to a shelter cabin and just could not go any further. Um, it was too dangerous, too difficult. So they hit their SOS buttons officially withdrawing themselves or scratching from the race. Um, and then further back from White Mountain, and this happened, or it was on the way to White Mountain, um, you had the chase pack the day before. They also got into that windstorm. And a couple of mushers didn't really get disqualified, but they did get penalized because they brought their dogs into the shelter cabin, um, which is against, Iditarod rules, not because Iditarod is cruel or that mushers are cruel, but it's considered um, an advantage because if you can't get everybody's dogs into the cabin and only some teams can get it into the cabin, it's considered an advantage even in these situations. Other teams argued that, you know, their dogs did just fine outside, so it wasn't like it was a true life or death situation. Um, And so that's where the decision came down that there should be a time penalty. And that was actually reversed. So, um, yeah, it it was just a very messy ending to Iditarod this year. And the Dieters, I want to talk a little bit about the storm Mm -hmm. and my personal perspective in just a second. But uh, Jeff and his wife, Katie Joa, is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. Were they, did they just scratch or were they disqualified or what happened when they pressed the button? Because they had to be evacuated pretty swiftly. Right, right. Um, So Jeff and Kitty Joe, they hit the SOS button. Anytime a musher 
hits the SOS button, which that's on the little trackers that we're watching on GPS, they have a button that they call the SOS button. And it's a call button that if possible, someone can come out and assess, you know, and help. Um, in the windstorm, they weren't able to right away get out to them, but Jeff had a satellite phone and he was able to call in that way. Essentially, they were given the opportunity. It was either disqualification or they could withdraw themselves or what we call a scratch. So they chose to scratch knowing full well that when they hit the SOS button, that was what they were going to do. It wasn't like this was a surprise to anyone, especially the mushers. Uh, it was still disappointing. Jeff had never uh, scratched at that point. Katie Jo was so close to finishing her rookie run. She's another one that's going at it again this year, 2023, and she's going to make it this year. I know she will. But uh, so, it, yes, it's technically a DQ because you know that once you hit that button that that's what's going to happen but it is considered the musher's choice and so unless the musher says no you have to withdraw me or you have to disqualify me it's considered a scratch and that goes back to the Hugh story with Ruby and having to requalify again I think that that's a, a key point with with Katie yeah. Joe even though she was qualified for the 2022 race she does not have to requalify for 2023 because that is retroactive, if you will. But isn't there also something in the rules about three quarters of the race finished or something like that? Uh, that I'm not sure of. I think when rookies um, scratch, it's not necessarily that they have to um, redo the qualifying runs, but they still have to go through the rookie meeting and um, they're considered rookies even if they've gone as far as she had uh, gone or that Bridget and Gearhart had gone. Um, they still are not finishers. They don't have that finishers buckle. They don't have the finishers patch. So they are considered rookies until they actually make it all the way to Nome. And you mentioned just how difficult it is to travel in those conditions. And I have just a little bit of a musher's perspective. Uh, by far, I was not in something as severe as what <laughs> those guys went through. But I remember several years ago, Tony, I was doing a training run out to getting a station from my place here in Willow and it was in the middle of the night and I got caught in one of those ground blizzard storms on the Big Sioux River about halfway between here and Yetna and I could not turn around. I just had to sit it out and uh, hope mm -hmm. for the best and I tell you what, that several hours felt like some of the longest hours in my <laughs> life because you have no idea where you are, you don't know what direction you're in, you don't know when it's going to end. Obviously, you can't look at your phone and says, oh, the, the radar says it'll <laughs> blow over in an hour because you're literally right. in the middle of nowhere. And a lot of people, like you said, with Dallas and Brent, a lot of people venture out into it. But it takes it takes a uh, a bigger guy or gal than I am, if you will, to uh, mm -hmm. to venture out into something like that because... You just don't know which way is up. And I, I remember right. uh, the dogs I had in lead. They've, they've passed along now, Ringo and Sydney. They were, were my lead dogs. And I remember just how excited they were to go, not only during the storm, but on the way back. And, and as we headed back, it was <laughs> sort of that late portion of that storm. You know, it was still windy, it's still blowing snow. Mm -hmm. But if you know anything about the the 
Big Sioux or the Yukon or anything like that. These are sometimes up to a mile wide rivers and there's mm-hmm. tracks all over these rivers where dog teams and snow machines and all that go. And I tell you what, Tony, those two dogs took me <laughs> from one edge of the river to the other <laughs> trying to find that track, that that scent yep. trail. And they just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And, mm-hmm. and I just pretty let, pretty much let them go where they wanted to go because, you know, obviously in that kind of conditions, you can't see the markers that they have out there. Lo right. and behold, they found it. And I tell you what, uh, it was it was an ordeal that I'll never forget. I remember <laughs> arriving back uh, three or four in the morning uh, when I was supposed to be back at like 11 o'clock at night or something like that. And it was an ordeal. So I can imagine being, you know, 700 miles into the Iditarod. And luckily, a lot right. of those folks on, on this year's Iditarod, they had they had help. They were with their, you know, their traveling buddies, whoever they were, whether it was um, Katie Joe and Bridget and, and those guys, they were all pretty much bundled up right, or bunched up, right? They were, yeah. You know, and it was one of those things when they realized that there was going to be a little bit of trouble, they all were like, hey, you know what, let's stick together. It's the only way that we're really going to make it through. Um, it's something that we see on the Yukon Quest. Um, you know, Rob Cook has shared stories about how he had to be the, you know, follow the leader with some of the Yukon Quest rookies on one of his last uh, quests. Um, and I, I just want to say that, you know, if you want to know exactly how Katie Jo felt uh, in that storm, she wrote an amazing blog post for their website. It's uh, Black Spruce Kennel. Uh, just Google it. And, and uh, she wrote, she wrote about those hours and, reading it you're just it's a harrowing tale um and yet here she is signed up for the next day did her on so um you know it's just one of those things where um you can't imagine and to sit there and compare one musher to the other you know if dallas can do it well then how come jeff couldn't do it or you know if brent could do it how come and it's like well you know as you know robert alaska weather changes and what really crappy one minute for me is not going to be the same crappy minute for you. Um, And that's kind of what it was. We just saw these uh, teams and they would start leapfrogging and it was just like, okay, the wind died down long enough for them to move another few feet or, or what have you. Um, And the same thing happened in 2014 when Dallas won his second Iditarod and didn't know it. It was the same thing. A ground, windstorm came up and knocked Jeff King out of the running and and Dallas kept going and Allie had stopped she didn't think that her team could go but by the time Dallas got up to her the winds had died down a little bit and he was like forget this I don't want to be in this wind any longer than I have to we're this close to Nome let's just keep going it can't get any worse and and that and the rest is history and we kind of saw that with Brent and Dallas uh this last year so um, it, it was a crazy ending, another crazy ending to, uh, I did a rod 50. I think it was probably one of the most exciting ones that newer fans have gotten to experience. I think it was a great way to end the 50th running of I did a rod. 
um, even though it was very, very scary in the moment, even sitting watching at home. Um, and I know it had to be bad because even Mitch Seavey was uh, saying how bad it was and scary it was. So, and he always pretends like nothing phases him. So, right. so you know, it was bad. I'm not, we're not trying to, you know, we're not trying to make it more dramatic and exciting. If Mitch is making it dramatic and exciting, then Katie Joe's blog is totally legit in my mind. And I'm going to try my best to find that article and post it in the show notes, along with all these stories that we're talking about. Uh, Tony, you, you touched on it briefly in, in this previous story about the, the penalties for the two mushers uh, with, the, with the dogs in the cabin and the subsequent appeals. And, and those were uh, victorious, I guess, if you will, uh, in terms of uh, the mushers because they got their, their times back or whatever. Am I right on that? And who were those people and what exactly, other than what we've already said, what exactly right. happened? Um, wh what do you mean bringing the dogs in the shelter cabin? So uh, a lot, everywhere along Alaska, there are cabins that are basically considered sheltered cabins. They're, it's a way to get out of the wind, out of the storm, um, and protect yourself. Typically, uh, it's stocked by locals and other travelers with uh, at least firewood. Um, not all shelter cabins have that option. Some of them are literally just boxes where it gets you out of the wind. Um, and Milla Porcelain and um, Michelle Phillips both got to one of the shelter cabins, one of the well-known shelter cabins, and decided it was safer to hunker down and try to wait out the storm. Um, but they were concerned that, um, you know, they were going to be out there quite a long time. So they decided to bring their dogs in, both knowing um, the rules very well that um, dogs aren't to come into shelter cabins unless it's for veterinary purposes. This is an old rule. Uh, I've heard some mushers call it the Susan Butcher rule because back in Susan Butcher's day, um, it, she would stop in certain areas and bring the dog team into a friend's cabin. And not every musher had a friend at every stop on the trail. And some of them got upset, petitioned, and had a rule in place that, you know, it's, it's considered outside assistance. But they brought it a little bit further because it's like, well, you know, there's this gray area of what if the person's not in the cabin, but you've just been given the key to the cabin or whatever. So it, it, that's my understanding. I wasn't actually paying attention that closely when all of that went down. Um, but essentially what it is, is it's considered... Um, an unfair advantage. If my dog can sit in the cabin, stay warm, well-rested, they're not having to burn as many calories keeping warm or whatever as a dog outside, um, then that's considered an undue advantage. Uh, it's possibly, it's been argued this last year that it's maybe an antiquated rule. Um, and that was essentially one of the arguments that the ladies made uh, after the race, after their penalties happened. Michelle Phillips, of course, went on social media right after it was announced that they had been penalized um, to say that, you know, she's taking her toys and going home, essentially. She wasn't going to support the race or run the race again until um, rules changed and thoughts changed and all of that. 
And it wasn't just the race officials that made that call. There was a petition by other racers, other mushers on the trail is my understanding. And that's why Iditarod made the decision it did originally to even pursue the um, the penalty. Now, I that's not the official story. It's just what I've been told by mushers <laughs> that were there. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of the hurt came from, is it wasn't just the, the race officials, but it was other mushers who were like, uh-uh, our dogs were outside, their dogs could have been out. And did I misspeak? Were they uh, successful in their appeal oh, yeah. or, or what? They were. Sorry, sorry. I totally forgot all about that question. Um, yes, they did. They Their original times were reinstated, which meant their original payout was reinstated to them. So. Um, it, it was a big deal. The the appeal happened. There were some that said that, you know, it wouldn't go any further than the appeal and they'd be shot down. And that turned out to be false. Uh, Michelle and, and Milla got their original um, placements on the, the finishers list reinstated. And are we still standing that um, uh, Michelle did not enter in 2023 and Milla did? in her in 2023 right right yeah Mila, right Mila never said that she wasn't going to run I did her out again it was just Michelle um I don't know if Michelle is going to keep to that or not she is for this year she's running the Cuscoquim 300 for the first time and she's running I believe both uh Yukon Quest races I'd have to go back and look to be sure I know that she signed up for the Canadian one so um yeah, I, I don't know if this is just Michelle taking a year off or if she's still standing by the whole, I don't want to deal with the I did her out again. And just a quick musher's perspective on this. I agree with that rule uh, with the dogs not being allowed in the cabins. And I know that that was a real touching point with uh, with the mm-hmm. fans um, that, uh, you know, we need to take dogs first, et cetera, et cetera, which I 100% agree with. But it is pretty commonplace for mushers to bring the whole team in to their house, to their cabin, and, you know, let them sleep all over the floor and all that. That's pretty common in mushing society. And I'm not against that, per se. Uh, Most of my dogs would Mm -hmm. stand at the front door and say, I don't want to be in here. I'd rather be outside with my buddies. Even if they were sick or injured, they'd rather be outside. But that's pretty commonplace. But I can see how you know in a very small cabin with you know two Iditarod teams of 10 12 14 dogs mm-hmm. that could make a pretty feisty situation <laughs> uh very quickly i can imagine dog fights and all that because these are right. not your pet labradors or golden retrievers these guys have the pack mentality pretty much to the hilt mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's it's another safety thing either way because yeah, I mean, like you said, you get too many bodies in there, even if they are our best friends. You're touching me for way too long and, you know, can't not touching, can't get mad. Just like your kids in the backseat of the car, you've got sled dogs that don't even have as much logic as a toddler <laughs> sometimes. And all it takes is one dog getting ticked off or going into heat or something like that. And you've got a regular dog pile on your hands. And that actually leads into our next story. We have two more stories, guys, for this uh, extended edition of Mushing Radio. And this next story is sort of a two-parter. It both They both involve 
uh, Jesse Holmes. And the first one mm-hmm. happens to be about this pack mentality and dogfights and whatnot. Shortly after I did a rod, I believe it was right after I did a rod and right before the Kobuk 440, which is about a week and a half in time uh, space, uh, he was in Wasilla and he dropped his dogs at a local hotel, uh, free drop them as they call it, or, or uh, free running or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And his dogs co- sort of ran down the down the road a bit and got into it with a... Uh, a pet dog and it did not end well is that right yeah um my understanding is the house was just um down the hill like in the backyard of the the hotel in this house they they're butt up against each other and there's just like this little incline or decline into the the person's yard and they put their little lap dog outside to go potty and next thing they know there's a pack of sled dogs in the yard and this poor little dog that didn't have the ability to get away um, and probably knowing a little lap dog if they're anything like mine the idiot dog that i have would try to take on this pack by themselves so um you know it was just a a really bad situation for everybody involved Uh, the little dog did not survive um and then of course the media got a hold of it but um yeah you know jesse did you know, I believe they settled with the the family of the the dog that was killed by Jesse's dogs. But it was one of those, I think, brain fart moments for the musher. Um, you know, you're used to free dropping your dogs when they get out of the dog truck. For those that don't know free dropping, that's where um, you're taking the dogs out of the dog truck. And a lot of mushers will then clip them to um, a tether that's connected to the dog truck but not all mushers do that some of them they let the dogs out of the truck and then they just let the dogs run around the truck while they're getting ready to feed them that way they they can go potty and everything like that and that's essentially what jesse did i'm sure he's done it a million times before with no problems and it just happened that this dog probably barked uh because he saw dogs up on the hill and that's what dogs do they like to say hi to each other and and then chaos broke loose Yeah, and as you mentioned, it was settled and uh, nothing really came of it uh, uh, on Jesse's Mm -hmm. side. And it was uh, tumultuous for a little while because there is a rule in Iditarod if you are uh, convicted of some type of animal cruelty or neglect Mm -hmm. of some type, and this could be considered so, uh, at least in my understanding of of the animal regulations, that uh, you can be banned from Iditarod. And that was, that was the Mm -hmm. true story to this, of course, uh, uh, besides the dog, uh, not making it, but that was the, the Iditarod story, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. And, and he had been originally, if you'd looked on court view, um, which is anybody in Alaska can go look up Alaska court view and you can find out all sorts of things about anybody. Um, if they're, if they've got a court case on them, but, um, he was originally charged with that and that was dropped. Um, and then I think he was found to just be negligent several times over with the dogs, which I mean, you know, if your dog is unrestrained in a place that they're supposed to be on a leash, you're going to get, you can get cited for it. So that's essentially what happened several times over because there were several dogs involved. Um, so that's, that's essentially what happened to him from what I could tell in the the thing. But yeah, it was a, it was a huge hullabaloo for a little while. The media really loved uh, the drama. It was, uh, yeah, it was right after I did a rod, so people were still paying attention to the mushing community. 
And Jesse Holmes was involved in another story uh, just a few months ago. I guess it was later in the summer. We talked earlier about climate change and storms of the century on the coast and, and, and the typhoon that happened. Briefly, what happened to Jesse and Brent? And I'm not recalling the third person that was with them. Um, yeah, so uh, this crew of Iditarod mushers, including uh, Brent Sass, Jesse Holmes, Jeff Dieter, and I can't remember the fourth, uh, Aaron Burmeister, I believe, uh, went out also. Uh, they went out to Gullivan, which it was a checkpoint on Iditarod. It's now an unofficial one. Um, but they went to help repair homes uh, and clean up after the disaster that was the uh, Typhoon Murbach. I think is how you say it, where just everything got flooded and Gullivan got hit pretty hard. And um, the way that homes are built there, um, there was insulation underneath the floorboards, uh, is my understanding. And they were down there. They were they were needing to get rid of the insulation and the the waterlogged floor. And Jesse went to pull down some insulation, and the entire floor collapsed on top of him. Um, he was buried for several minutes underneath the debris uh, before Dieter and Sass were able to pull him out. Um, he suffered several major injuries, I believe a broken collarbone, um, something with his throat, I think a, a collapsed windpipe, um, broke both arms, uh, he was kind of, he was, he was a mess. He was life-flighted from Nome to, I believe, Anchorage for surgery. Um, so it was, it was a scary little story when it first broke that Jesse had been in this major accident, but he was back on the runners for fall training. I think right on time, he had signed up for all of these races, never once questioned that he was going to make it. Um, so it's one of those things where it, it's the, best outcome possible um, for what he sustained. Yeah, and that was a, a scary time. Uh, I remember that like it was yesterday, not only from, from the, the, the storm itself, and that was big news in Alaska on its own, but then you mm -hmm. had uh, these four Iditarod finishers out on their own. It wasn't uh, Iditarod sanctioned right. or anything. I think they just got together and said, hey, how can we help? They jumped in a bush plane and right. took off to to go do this volunteer work that could have ended up very badly. So hopefully everything mm -hmm. turned out well. As you said, he's he's uh, signed up for all these other races and ready to rock and roll. Yeah, he's he's commented uh, several times now on social media that, you know, he's telling all the other mushers, hey, I'll see you at Copper Basin or I'll see you at this race. So uh, he's excited. He's pumped. Uh, it'll be interesting. I think Jesse Holmes, I don't think this is a setback for him. I think he's still one of the top mushers for the season. And uh, I, I do too. And he's always in my top five. I think he's very, very close to uh, to winning Iditarod uh, if it's not uh, this year in the next couple of years as well. I think he's really going to give these, uh, these uh, front runners a run for their money because he's always up there anyway. But he will yeah. have his time for sure. So let's end uh, on a happy note, but this does have a tinge of controversy with it. <laughs> uh, we started with um, 
with Lance Mackey passing away as sort of the beginning of this uh, year in the news and mushing. But uh, anybody that followed Iditarod, as well as probably the sports world in general, and maybe even shows like Good Morning in America and things like that, this story <laughs> really hit the airwaves. Let's talk about the story for a bit, what the controversy was, and of course, uh, the happy ending. I think any of our listeners and any Iditarod musher musher fan, mushing fan, uh, knows the story of Leon. Leon uh, also happened, I believe, in Ruby. Uh, Leon was uh, left, not left behind. He was what returned. The return dog is what they call it now. We called it drop dog forever, and it's always going to be drop dog. But essentially, when a dog is tired, injured, just doesn't want to run anymore, isn't eating well, whatever reason, um, they are left in a checkpoint with the veterinarians and they're flown back to Anchorage to where their handlers can then pick them up. Leon was a dog from um, who was very skittish and he was left in the checkpoint. My understanding is the type of collar that he was wearing was not one that was the norm for Iditarod drop dogs. And so he was able to slip his collar and get loose and he took off and it wasn't noticed right away. Um, And then there was some miscommunication with the handlers in Anchorage. They were unaware for a few days the dog had been lost. And so there was a little delay between the musher finding out that his dog was missing um, and when the big search actually happened, or I should say the search was happening from the time they realized the dog was missing. The search being made public didn't happen for several days. Um, And so that's where I did or I'd gotten to quite a bit of trouble um, because it felt like they were trying to hide it or otherwise, you know, trying to just ignore it. it. People felt that they didn't care. I don't, I didn't think that that was very fair, especially to the villages that basically dropped everything looking for this dog during the race, um, and especially the volunteers in the checkpoint, um, to have people accuse them of not caring and not doing anything to find this dog, um, I think was a little unfair, but it seemed like Iditarod didn't spend too much time worrying about it or giving press releases. Um, And then the race ended. The dog still hadn't been found. Um, We were starting to lose hope uh, that the dog would be found because we were getting into what we call breakup, which means the rivers were going to break up. This dog didn't know the area. Um, There'd been no sightings of the pup. Um, Nick Petit and his team actually rented a helicopter and flew Uh, The area looking for signs of the dog, not very fruitful. They um, sent money to some of the villagers who rode snow machines until they couldn't ride snow machines anymore looking for the dog. And then miraculously, Leon turned up. Uh, Just when we'd all decided that this was not going to be a happy ending, Leon came home. So it, it, that's kind of it in a nutshell. There was a lot of other stuff back and forth. Um, I did a rod supposedly trying to take credit for what Nick and team had done outside of I did a rod. It, you know, it, it was just kind of an ugly thing. But 
long story short, Leon is now back with his musher. Um, it was a happy ending. And Iditarod is promising that every drop dog will have a GPS tracker on them this year. So there is some good that came out of it. And a couple of quick points here. Uh, the first point is it is very common for dogs to be dropped. I've done it many times on races myself and, and in big races like I did a Rod or Quest or yep. whatever, there could potentially be hundreds of dogs that are returned. And I always say dropped as well on that returned list. It's a very common practice. But as a dog musher, it is something that is always on our mind. Even here at our kennel, right before we were to record our dogs down in the kennel, which is just <laughs> down the hill, a half an acre from us, were barking like crazy. And we had to run down to make sure nobody got off their off of their spots, uh, if they slipped their collars or whatever. It is a pretty common occurrence for that to happen. And all hands are on deck when that does occur. So it's something that is that is pretty common in the mushing world. And it's interesting on a couple of levels that Leon was found. Number one, it was in remote, remote Alaska. I mean, there was not mm -hmm. a road to be found, right. at least a road that leads anywhere. Uh, but it was a couple of hundred miles, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, he wasn't found in the checkpoint that he was lost in. He was found in the checkpoint right before that checkpoint, as I recall, which was not surprising, really. Um, that typically when a dog does get loose on Iditarod, be it, um, you know, a, an error at the, the drop, drop dog location or if they somehow get off of their lead um, on the team, they typically backtrack because they can smell where they've been. They can smell the other dogs. Sometimes they'll run up ahead if they smell the dogs that went before them, but typically they go backwards. Um, we saw that with one of Jim Lanier's dogs a few years ago, um, Wrong Way May, who ran literally back all the way down the Iditarod Trail and came home. So it's, it's not... It's not uncommon for dogs to necessarily get loose. It's very uncommon for them to go missing that long um, and to go missing that long with a happy ending. This is the second one that I can think of and I did around history, um, at least in the more modern history of I did around, um, where it's happened and both outcomes were happy, but you, you, you're kind of hoping it never happens again because that, that's, any dog owner's worst nightmare. I literally wake up at night sometimes having had a nightmare of my dog just running out the door and just running away. So um, it's it, it, even the best trained dogs once in a while, they just get a wild hair up their butt and they're gone. So um, yeah, it, it was definitely uh, a surprising happy ending uh, to that whole, that whole drama. And interestingly, uh, the the musher Santos, right? Is that his? Does Santos? What's his last? Yes. What's his yes. first name? Yeah, uh, Sebastian, I believe. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm terrible with names. Uh, but he flew back all the way back from yes. uh, France, uh, which France. Uh, yep. to, to to pick up his dog. I mean, they didn't put him on a flight and and you know fly the dog home cargo right. he flew all the way back to pick up this dog and i sh i think that that shows a couple of different things number 1 just that um that bond that we have with our team number 1 and then number mm -hmm. 2 
just the amount of resources that are involved with this, uh, you know, right. it, it cannot be a cheap endeavor to fly all the way back to Alaska, pretty much at the drop of a hat, you know, to, to mm. come and pick up a dog that, that was found. I can imagine that was a pretty expensive flight on its own. Oh yeah, no doubt. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm sure it was, he was heavy hearted when he had to leave, um, without the dog and it was definitely the pictures that they shared on the Iditarod Facebook page uh, when they were reunited. I think they spoke volumes. And the last point to that, you had mentioned that uh, Iditarod had promised to use some type of GPS trackers uh, starting this year. Do you know anything more about that? Is it, um, you know, one of the little collar trackers is obviously the, the ones that they have out for the public, a lot of those are Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or whatever. Those won't right. work in the middle of nowhere, those um, uh, embark collars or whatever they're called. I don't even know the name of them. Right. But uh, th- th- <laughs> those aren't designed to work uh, in Iditarod country. Yeah, not, not, that I, not that I've been able to tell. Um, no, they didn't really go into detail. Rob just happened to mention it during the town hall. Um, and then didn't go into detail with it, but he did say that every drop dog will have a GPS tracker. There you I don't ha- know how that's going to work. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that's a lot of trackers. And I can imagine the uh, the logistical nightmare of trying to keep track of potentially a thousand dogs. Well, not a thousand this year since we have such a small field. That's, I guess it's a good right. a good. Um, uh, pilot test uh, with the few mushers and right. the few dogs that will be out there to be easier to track, uh, you know, 300 of them or 400 of them versus a thousand mm-hmm. dogs. So we'll see how that works out. So guys, there you have it. That was the 2022 news year in review in mushing. And I'm sure we probably missed some. If we did, please let us know in the comments. Let us know what your favorite story was from the 2022 mushing year. And that uh, right now, that's a a 12-year calendar. We have literally gone from talking about Iditarod two weeks in March to doing biweekly podcasts and blogs and the whole nine yards. It's becoming like the NFL. I don't know if we will have a spot (laughs) on Rob Urbach's uh, Netflix channel for dogs, but you never know. You might see us streaming in the future. I, I I won't hold my breath, but we might be there. What do you What do you think, Tony? Will we be on the channel? Uh, probably not. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We can petition it for sure. I know that you are now friends with a couple of uh, higher ups on Iditarod, so we'll leave it at that. So, guys, uh, if you have not hit that subscribe button, please do so. We are in the middle of mushing season at least at least for alaska and throughout the world uh check us out hit that subscribe button tell your friends and family about our show there's a whole bunch of you out there on social media under the hashtag ugly dogs that are religious followers of ours and uh, tell your friends about our show because we're about to uh, get involved with it pretty hot and heavy and i'm looking forward to it tony I can't wait. I'm I'm so excited that the connect's starting this week. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. So stay tuned, guys. We will be back real soon. On behalf of my co-host Tony, this is Robert. We will see you guys next time. Goodbye. From Dog Works Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.